Hello, everybody out there watching this on video or listening to this on the podcast. My name is Drew Hoffler, and my wife Tina and I have been coming to Emmanuel Covenant now for a little over a year and a half. Uh, and really enjoying our time getting plugged into uh, this community. It's been a great time. Thank you for your warm welcome. And thank you, uh, Pastor Chris, for the opportunity to share about this important topic. So let me just get that topic out of the way right now. Yes, this is the porn sermon. <laughs> yeah, and so this is my introduction to a lot of you. Uh, I'm just kidding. I... I actually am very happy to talk about this because for the last four years, uh, I've been talking to and listening to uh, the stories of guys struggling and recovering from this area. And obviously, this area is much is a much bigger subject than I can cover in a 30-minute sermon, so I struggled a little bit with how to approach this. I mean, I could show you a bunch of stats, uh, and for the to give you some perspective on the scope and the scale, I could show you that the porn industry is estimated to rake in a hundred billion dollars in annual revenue, and compare that to Netflix, which only rakes in thirty-one. Or I could give you an annual Gallup survey that shows that in twenty twenty-two, forty-two percent of Americans uh, believe that watching porn is morally acceptable, and how that's up from 31% just 10 years ago. Or I could give you Barna research that reveals that 67% of overall men and 56% of women under 25 searched for porn in the last month, with Christian men and women doing so less, but it's still far too high rates of 40% and 15% respectively. I can show you a lot of stats because the Josh McDowell ministry put compiled all this stuff together a few years ago from all the different reports that were out there. And I kid you not, it is a 1,994 page document. And I am not going to inflict that upon everybody today. So, so I'm not going to do that. I also thought maybe I could dig into the brain science of it. And that would give me an opportunity to show you really cool slides like this one that shows the healthy brain on the left a brain that has been on heroin in the middle, and a brain that has been on porn on the right. And yes, there are a lot of implications that come from the fact that the brain on porn image and the brain on heroin image look so much alike. But I'm not a scientist, and I don't want to spend my valuable time here with you simply reciting research reports. Or I could just make this a really quick and cliche sermon and just say, porn is bad, don't look at porn. But I think that would be a waste of time because I think and I hope that most of us at least realize that. But given our limited time here today, I'm going to sweep those things off the table for today um, and save them for a couple of our around the tables on Thursday nights a little bit later in the summer. So be looking up, be on the lookout for more information on that. Instead, I'm going to anchor right here in chapter six of our first Corinthian series simply as a way of opening the discussion about porn in the church by hopefully answering the first question that any of us asks when we become verbal that every parent knows, and that question is why. I still like to ask that question. I don't think I've ever grown out of that. And we're going to ask that question. We're going to look at the question of why, because Paul's main argument here in 1 Corinthians has everything to do with the why of avoiding porneia. Porneia. Why did I use that word? Well, that's the word in Greek that Paul uses that is translated in most of our Bibles as sexual immorality, sometimes as fornication. And those are okay, but they're a little bit vague in meaning. And the, and the word that Paul used, porneia, the concept as he understood it and as it was used back then was a larger, broader term. So I want to challenge us to think about 
porneia, not just porn or sexual immorality, in the way that Paul did. So I'm going to be using that word porneia throughout this message when I read it as it occurs in the New Testament, in this passage. And as Paul does for the Corinthian church, I also want to invite us all to remember what is our birthright in the kingdom as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Because as Paul will make crystal clear in this passage, the primary problem with porneia and all that it represents is that it is dedicated to the destruction and theft of our inheritance. And it's therefore something that Paul says the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit, simply must account for and overcome. So if you have your Bibles with you or you don't, go get them. Now is the time to open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to go to Bible.com or download the Bible app on your phone so you always have it with you. Okay, our passage for today in this 1 Corinthians series, chapter 6, we're going to start in the second half of verse 13. <clears throat> said, the body, however, is not meant for porneia, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is united with him in spirit." Flee from sexual immorality, from porneia. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but the one who porneias sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. All right, before we get into the meat of this passage, let's first review what we know about Corinth and the culture of the time. We've already learned that Corinth is a center of trade with very loose morals, people moving in and out, but I think I'm the first person to mention that it was also the center of temple worship for Aphrodite, the goddess of sexual love, and one of the main sacraments, a common sacrament in that worship was temple prostitution. So let me just let the scholar Gordon Fee, who we've quoted a lot in this series, I'll just give him the last word here. And he says about Corinth, sexual sin, there was in abundance. Paul's Corinth was at once New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. It was a place where anything goes sexuality was normalized, was encouraged. Uh, it was even worshipped with pride and publicly paraded in celebration. So yeah, it was a culture a lot like ours. And as we often do, the Corinthian church found it really easy to get caught up in such an atmosphere when they're breathing it in every single day. So it was to a church in a very similar situation at our, as ours that Paul says, flee porneia. So what is this porneia that we are supposed to flee from? Well, first of all, it is not simply pornography, right? Pornography is certainly a manifestation of Porneia in graphic form, porneia, graphos, come together to make pornography. But what Paul is referring to here is broader. Originally, the word was used for the transactional consumption of another, of another person's sexuality, primarily through prostitution, be that secular or sacred. But the word evolved to encompass all the manifestations of, quote, unrestricted sexual indulgence. And while this word in the secular world was primarily used for outward acts, 
we need to understand that Jesus moved sexual sin significantly inward when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it was said, do not commit adultery, the physical act of having sex with somebody outside of your marriage. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that's going to become very important as we look at this passage. Because while porneia is very often expressed physically, Jesus says it always first manifests in the meditations of our hearts. So with that in mind, let me propose a definition for us of porneia for us to use as we consider this passage and frankly, as we consider our world. And that definition is this. Porneia is all the ways that we consume or package sexuality to indulge selfish appetites of the flesh. Now, this, of course, includes what we call pornography today, but I propose that it also manifests itself in other places like Instagram feeds, popular entertainment, social media, even on the beach. Anything that we use to get that little sexual thrill. Because porneia has less to do with nudity per se than it has to do with how we consume sexuality. But regardless of the form it takes, Paul says to flee porneia because it is uniquely a sin against our bodies, which are temples of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at that again in verses 18 and 19. Let's read that again. Flee from porneia. All the other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever porneias sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Look, I'll let the theologians and philosophers speak to the details of how how that works. You know, how is the Holy Spirit actually in our heart? What does that look like? I, I don't claim to know all that. But I do know when a person's body becomes the Holy Spirit. And I do know why, and more importantly, where the Holy Spirit takes up residence. And so does Paul, because that is the very foundation of his plea to flee porneia. And understanding this reality, that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, Paul does not tell us to simply moderate our consumption of porneia, like food or wine, or to see how close we can get to the edge of what's okay, or to slowly back away from porneia. No, Paul fairly shouts out to flee. Now, flee is a really evocative word. You know, it's the idea of escaping imminent danger to a place of safety. And not in a considered, well-thought-out, planned-out retreat, but rather in a headlong flight away from something threatening to imminently harm or kill you. In fact, I think flee looks a lot like this. Now, see, that's a pretty strong slide showing people running away from the towers collapsing on September 11th, right? It's a strong image, and it was strong language here where Paul says that if you're a believer, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, so flee or get away from porneia. And the language that he's using there and the tone that he uses sounds a lot to me like what he said earlier in 1 Corinthians when he told the church in chapter 3 that you all together are the temple of the Holy Spirit, so get porneia away from you by casting out that guy who was, you know, porneaing, if you will, with his father's wife, who was unrepentant. That's a key part. But the way that the Bible and both of these passages speak about the same subject in slightly different ways 
tells me that this is a chiasm. A common literary structure in the Bible, a chiasm, is a parallel arrangement of thought or language that pivots around a key point of emphasis. One typical structure of a chiasm looks like an arrowhead when you diagram it out, where these ideas repeat or echo each other and draw the attention to the author's focal point. Such is the case in 1 Corinthians, where these two sections pivot around Paul's primary point about porneia that he makes in verses 9 and 10, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is the consequence of porneia in the Holy Spirit's temple that is at the root of Paul's passionate plea, because wherever, whether it's the larger body of the church or whether it's our individual bodies, Paul urges us to purge porneia because our inheritance is at stake. Let's read that. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Let's jump up a little bit. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, this phrase, do you not know, Paul uses this phrase 11 times throughout all his writings in the New Testament. Ten of those are here in 1 Corinthians, and seven of those are right here in chapters 5 and 6 regarding this this subject. It's He's clearly, and I think incredulously, pointing out something that should not at all be in dispute. Let's read it again with that in mind in that tone. Or do you not know, do you, do you really not think that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, the porneia, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite a list right there. And I've been at least three of those in my life. How about you? And I ask you that because I don't know who's watching this or or listening to that. So I don't know about you, but Paul clearly knew the Corinthians because he planted the church. So he simply stated the truth to them in the next verse when he said these words, and such were some of you, but, but, you know, that's one of those really big little words, isn't it? Three letters in the Greek, excuse me, three letters in the English four letters in this emphatic form of Greek, but oh, how much of life and eternity pivots upon that little word, but. And in Emmanuel Covenant, I'm sure that we could all agree that such were some of us, but we said yes. Shout out to Pastor Jason for the idea and the execution of this amazing yes wall that hangs in the studio. And and shout out to each of you who put your yes moment on this wall. Because each of those 300 blocks, almost 300 blocks of wood right now, and growing, so please submit yours if you'd like, represents a point or multiple points along each of our individual paths where we, like the Corinthians, encountered Christ, our Savior King Jesus, and we said yes to him, yes to his offer of life. And the Corinthians had done the same. And here in the original text, Paul I think sharpening the contrast between the before state of being and then the after saying yes state of being actually puts this little word but in front of each of the following phrases in the rest of the verse when he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And when we said yes, in that moment, God delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. 
And God set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. There it is. The spirit in our bodies, in our hearts, as our inheritance. But why? Why did he put it there? As a deposit on our inheritance in his kingdom, as our birthright as children of the king. And this is why Paul is so concerned about porneia, because it imperils our inheritance. But what is our inheritance then? That's what it imperils. We should know what that is. Well, it is certainly, as Peter tells us, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, that is kept in heaven for us. It is that. But Paul tells us that we've been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit on our inheritance. We were not simply given an IOU or a ticket like we get at the dry cleaners that's of no intrinsic value until we cash it in for something else. No, the language here makes it clear that we've been given a deposit or a pledge, something of real current value that acts as security or a down payment on the rest that's coming. The Holy Spirit is that deposit on our kingdom inheritance that we will receive in full in the next life but was given to us the moment we believed in order that through the Holy Spirit, we might have the power to actually grow into and experience in this life the qualities of the eternal life that awaits us. So what is that life, that inheritance life that we get to have now? Well, the Bible makes it clear that it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It is power for living, not just words that we speak. It is rivers of of living water flowing up from the Holy Spirit to slake the thirsty longings of our souls. Longings for things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. It is the fruit that grows from the Holy Spirit deposited into the now softened soils of our hearts. And it is exactly why Jesus said he came when he said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Life, the quality of eternity, the fruit of the kingdom overflowing in abundance. That is our inheritance. And that inheritance is for right now. But porneia is opposed to and actively corrupts this life. Because addressing these and other acts of the flesh with Galatians in a passage that is remarkably parallel to this one in Galatians 5 and 6, but in Galatians 6 he says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A person reaps what they sow. Whoever sows to please the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Now, that word corruption, I think, is a better translation than what is in a lot of our Bibles, which says destruction, because destruction gives this idea of something sudden, like an explosion or an earthquake. And, you know, make no mistake, one act of the flesh can certainly blow up your life. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us and reminds us to see to it that no one is porneia or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the eldest son. But more often than not, porneia is a corrupting influence. And this word refers to to destruction that comes not as the result of a violent thing, but as the result of rot and decay, like rust to metal or corruption in rotting fruit or cancer in an otherwise healthy body. 
It is something that is introduced into an otherwise whole and healthy system that diminishes it, that makes it less than it could be, that ruins a thing in the end. Because you see, isn't that what the acts of the flesh do? The acts of the flesh always promise to add something to our life. They always say that if you don't do this, then you're missing out. You're not getting what other people have. You need this in order to truly experience life when all they actually do is diminish us and diminish what we were meant to be. They introduced decay and rot where God meant growth and pulsating life. So look, the acts... The list of sins, the acts of the flesh that are here in 1 Corinthians 6, and you'll also find in Galatians 5, where Paul lists Pornea at the top, but he ends it by saying, and the like, meaning that it's not even a comprehensive list, all the acts of the flesh make it clear that Pornea is not unique. It is not the unforgivable sin. It is not the sin that God looks down at us and says, oh my gosh, that's all I've got, no more, that far and no more. Pornea is not that, right? It is, it is just like other acts of the flesh. But, oh, pornea is most certainly unique because it involves our bodies, as Paul said, which are temples of the Holy Spirit. And per Jesus, pornea begins its work in our hearts, which is where the Holy Spirit resides. And if my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, is not my heart the Holy of Holies? And while all the acts of the flesh bring corruption into our lives, Pornea aims that corruption directly at the heart and the things most dear to it, including one of the greatest ways we're meant to participate in God's divine nature. Consider with me, if you will, a thought that's been on my heart as I have meditated on this passage uh, in anticipation of this day. Next to God and our love for him and his love for us, which we have in our hearts in the Holy Spirit, what is the human heart's deepest longing? Is it not to know and to be known intimately by another? Is it not for the love of another as God designed it from the very beginning? And the central expression of oneness and intimacy that God gives unimpeded and without shame to those in covenantal relationship of marriage is what Paul was protecting from pornea corrupting two unique beings, two unique bodies coming together to become one. And look, let's be real. Okay. Let's not be Pollyannish about this sex and marriage as with anything in this fallen world does not always reflect God's perfect standard. We know this, but we also know, I hope that at its best, which it often is married sex is not solely a physical act but rather the outward expression of a spirit of a two spirits connected in an emotional intimacy that is really only possible in between a husband and a wife body soul and spirit united in an intimate bond of love it sounds almost trinitarian to me and out of that intimate union of course we literally participate in God's most creative act the bringing of a human being into this world, creating life where before there was none. Is it any wonder then at the volume of vitriol just vomited out on this life-giving gift by the one who comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy? How wisely Solomon counseled 
You know, so yeah, porneia is like other sins and acts of the flesh. They all pour poison onto the soil of our lives, but porneia puts that corrupting poison right at the roots in our hearts. So here is where Solomon was wise in counseling us above all else, guard your hearts for it is the wellspring of life. How much more true is that now? Unlike in Solomon's day when the Holy Spirit has taken up residence there as his temple. So flee porneia. The stakes are high. The very life we desired when we said yes, that thing that drew us to Jesus, our inheritance in the kingdom of God, that is what porneia wants to rip away from us, to steal, to kill, or to destroy. So honor God with your bodies, as Paul says, and flee porneia. So how do we do that, though? How do we do that? How do we flee porneia when it is everywhere encouraged and packaged for consumption? Well, as a church body, I think being upfront about porneia, that porneia in all its forms is certainly sin, like other things, and that we should never be okay with it being normalized, while not also being surprised that it quite commonly entangles even believers. Acknowledging it's a problem and being willing to face it and talk about it openly as a church, this is a really good start. Thank you for being a church that in many ways has been willing to take on uncomfortable subjects. Can I also encourage us to be a place where it's okay for somebody to ask for help? You know, because Pornea's greatest source of power is the isolation, the secrecy, and the shame that it leaves in its wake. My hope and my prayer for us as a church body is that we will be a safe place for people to raise their hand, to open up, to say, I'm struggling and I really want to get out of this. I really don't want to keep doing this. Where they could find forgiveness and lasting freedom from this stronghold of sin, just like we do for any other sin. And as individual believers... My challenge is to begin rethinking where we put that no trespassing sign of, for porneia and where that should be posted and reevaluating the things that we consume with our eyes, that we think about in our minds, that we feed our hearts with against that definition of porneia that I proposed to you earlier, that is all the ways that we consume or package sexuality to indulge the selfish appetites of the flesh. Because every time we consume out-of-bounds sexuality, porneia exerts a corrosive and corrupting influence, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in little ways that we don't see for a long time, but always, always to our harm. It is a deadly enemy of the life that in Christ that is our birthright as believers. So let us not treat it lightly, but be alert to all the ways in which porneia may manifest in our lives and then flee from those things. For help with this, I encourage you to go to and check out the resource page that we've created at emmanuel.church/flee uh, where we've curated resources to help you if you're struggling, if you know somebody who's struggling, or if you're a parent with kids and you want to know what's available out there or what they're going through or what's available to help protect them, then this is a good place to start, you know, because there are a lot finally Thankfully, a lot of great ministries, books, podcasts, uh, tools, groups that are available now. And we've tried to pull together some of the best uh, for you as a starting place. Finally, though, 
I want to speak to those of you who are in some way right now caught up by the chains of pornea that so easily entangle. And unless our church is a unicorn, and look, I do believe that Emmanuel is a uh, very mature church, but unless we're a unicorn, I know that there are many of you who struggle against this stronghold. You know it's a sin. You're not like the Corinthian believers that Paul was talking to who he had to be like, do you not realize that this is a problem, right? No, you understand that it's a sin. You know it's damaging your life. You've tried to stop, but you haven't been able to fully. And whether the frequency is every few months, every few weeks, or even every few days, you find yourself in a cycle of acting out, doing something you never thought you would do, followed by shame, self-loathing, and hiding, followed by determination that I'm never going to do this again, this is the last time, followed by temptation, followed by acting out, followed by shame, wash, rinse, and repeat. And for those of you who I am talking to right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Whether you've just recently recognized this cycle in your life or if you've secretly struggled with it for years, even decades, what I want to say to you today is that Jesus' offer of life still stands. That life is still your birthright as a believer in Christ. There is hope. There is a way forward back to that life. I can say this with confidence because we saw in the stats that we looked at earlier how many people even in the church search for porn. And I can say this with confidence as well because I'm one of those people who was struggling. You see, I have another yes block that I'm going to add to that wall that I waited to until after this message because on July 4th, 2019, I said yes to Jesus's offer of rescue and I took step one and I admitted to God and to myself that I was powerless over my addictions and my compulsive behaviors and that my life had become unmanageable. And on that day, I began the process of rooting out of my life that life-choking weed whose seeds were sown when I was six years old, and I found my, that I could access my dad's large stash of very hardcore porn anytime I wanted to throughout my childhood. And as a small aside here, early exposure to pornea for a child with no clue what to do with the kinds of feelings that it evokes is unfortunately a top two shared experience for those who struggle in this area, be it male or female. The other top two thing, sexual abuse. You know, that's a sobering reality when we consider that the average age of exposure today is somewhere between 8 and 11 years old, depending on the study that you look at, and that about 41% of young people say that they have viewed porn at school during the school day with half of that exposure being on school-issued devices. You know, back in the day, it used to be that kids or anybody had to go look for porn. But with today's tech and marketing techniques, porn is looking for us. It's looking for them. So let's not be naive about this, right? There is effort involved in breaking this stronghold. It is rarely easy to throw off a sin that is so easily entangled in our hearts and is so often tied to issues that are deeper than merely lust. It does take work. And that work is not simply, unfortunately, praying more, reading your Bible more, or trying harder to white-knuckle it through temptation. But remember, what we really desire is life. 
what our hearts long for is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is like a treasure buried in a field that upon finding, a person goes and sells all they have in order to buy that field because they know that the treasure of greater worth than anything else is worth whatever it costs to get it. Such is the case with getting free of even of even occasionally having pornea in your life. Whatever it costs, it's worth the price because the treasure is the life of the kingdom and our inheritance. Now, the good news is, is that there are proven pathways and many people are walking them and recovering this life that is their birthright as believers in Christ. I am, you can too, and if you're willing, we'd like to help. I'd encourage you to go to the resource page and check out some of those things. We've also created an email alias that will, that it will only go to one or two people, not the pastors, and will be fully confidential. It is flea at emmanuel.church. Look in the session notes to find out the actual email if I stated that wrong or on the, on the website. It's confidential. And if you have a question, even if you just have a question about this area, if you need, if you want some help, if you want to know what to do next, or if you just need somebody to talk to, send an email to that address. So earlier we looked at the warning in the first part of Galatians 6, chapter 8, that if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. But I want to leave us with the promise of the last part of that verse, that whoever sows to please the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That is our inheritance. That is what we seek, and that is what we can have. So flee pornea and pursue life. Thank you.